Beatles and Bongo. Latin music, you know, Latin versions of, J- of Jewish songs. Wow. And Irving Fields also wrote the song. I went to hear him in person once. He did, uh, he wrote a song called Miami Beach Rumba. It's a great song. We still play that on gigs. Kids love this song. And you have just heard the voice of Jake Gitlin. <laughs> Welcome to WNHH Radio's Dateline New Haven. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. Jake Gitlin has been wa- watching what makes New Haven tick since many of our listeners were born or before for more than 50 years, and he has a lot to say and write about it. Jay is a lecturer in history at Yale, associate director of the Howard R. Lamar Center for Study in Frontiers and Borders. But more importantly for us, since majoring in urban studies at Yale in the mid-60s, Jay has watched New Haven evolve while also studying its history and gigging nonstop. He's a professional musician, and we're going to learn in this hour how music and politics coincide in New Haven. It's a lot to talk about. Jay is here in the WNHH studio to help us see our city through his eyes. Jay Gitlin, thank you so much for coming on WNHH without any idea why we brought you here and what we're going to talk about. <laughs> Paul, thanks for inviting me. I can tell you I'm very much behind the headlines. <laughs> so so distant from the headlines, we'll, 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 we'll see if we can even see them. Well, Jay, for more than a half century, you have been someone who studies cities, studies New Haven, who plays music professionally, and you also were giving a talk at Chamber of Commerce for many years called New Haven, Just Another Stop Off the Turnpike. So before we tar and feather you, before you can get out of the studio, what the <laughs> heck did you mean by that? Okay, I'll tell you. So uh, for I can't remember, Paul, how many years it was, at least four or five. And Alan Plattis, who also does urban studies in the School of Architecture at Yale and is an old and good friend, Alan and I would do a kind of dog and pony show for the Chamber of Commerce. Alan went in, I guess this was the safer route to take, but he's very good at this. Uh, and praise New Haven and talk about all the wonderful attributes. And all New the chamber people who live in the suburbs and just come here during the day and have the tax rate that lets them us subsidize their standard of living, pretend they love the city when in truth they fleed it for fled the city for single acre zoning or restrictive zoning, whereas you understood them better because you live in the suburbs and you weren't pretending. Alan well, lives in Westville, right? You of course. Me. And Alan would tell them everything that the, <laughs> that the New Haven people believe. want to hear. Yeah, and then yeah. I'd say things that and I would see the suburban guys sort of pick up and say, okay, this guy's finally speaking the truth. <laughs> but we can't admit it. And what was the truth in the view of the suburban person? Well, here's, I can explain this. So what I meant by that, and for years, and I can tell you a little bit about that after I tell you about this, uh, I taught a class called the Suburbanization of America. Mm-hmm. And it, it's looking at suburbanization, uh, suburbanization from a historian's uh, perspective. And I am, I will freely admit, a person from the suburbs. I grew up in Massapequa, in Long Island, Farmingdale High School. By the way, just for a second, we'll come back to that. To brag about Massapequa, um, Jerry Seinfeld's from Massapequa. His dad, in fact, was a sign painter. So even though he spelled his name S-E-I-N-F-E-L-D. He did S-I-G-N. He did S-I-G-N. That's Seinfeldian. Yeah, it is. This is where he learned it, probably from his dad. Also from Massapequa, across the street lived D. Snyder, who uh, yep, did Twisted, Twisted Sister. Sister. Uh, the and whole, a guy from the Cars. Uh, yes, that's absolutely right. Also, because I have a friend from Massapequa, Joey Botafuco, also from oh, Mass- really? Yes, okay. oh, absolutely. The entire Gambino the crime best name family villain in the tabloid news. Oh, of my, come on, yeah. Joey Botafuco. Yeah, the entire Gambino <laughs> crime family and the Baldwin brothers and Alec Baldwin. Oh my goodness! And, all and from Massapequa. This is my hometown, folks. <laughs> And I am Massapequa proud. So anyway. But, Jay, it's a little more complicated, your relationship with suburbs and cities, because as a teenager, you started playing professional music at 14. You've never stopped. You're in your 60s. You used to go into the village. And I remember that because I grew up in Westchester. I've been mm-hmm. here since I was 18 years old in 1978. And my favorite place to always be and hear music was in Greenwich Village. And you, could, you didn't have to be 18 to get in the bars, the, the Village Vanguard. So, in fact, you needed to go to a city. Of course you to did. To have music and culture. And I love cities. And we'll get to that. So, so yeah. I mean, in fact, a month ago, uh, my wife and I went uh, with, our, uh, with our drummer and his wife to the Village Vanguard to see Bill Charlap, who is my favorite piano player of this generation, the Bill Charlap Trio. I haven't been to the Vanguard for years and years. It was just as much fun as it always was. We ate at a great restaurant around the corner. I and love cities. And what suburb cities. do you live in now? 
I live in North Brantford, right on the it's line nice between Brantford, North Brantford, and Guilford. So back to this thing we did just for the chamber. Just another stop on the turnpike. Yeah, just another stop, but there's so much to talk about. Okay, so the basic message was this. I said, yes, New Haven's got all sorts of wonderful attributes, arts, culture, lots of stuff going on, interesting folks. Here's the thing. You can't ignore what companies need. And one of the things they need, for example, is parking. Parking in New Haven is not fun. It's still not fun. It's it's a drag. There are other problems in New Haven. So that's, that to me, that's whiners from the company. Because the truth is that that was the conventional wisdom when you gave those talks. Mm-hmm. But now companies, aren't they looking more for like mass transit and groovy cities and things like that? I mean, we've had companies finally move in. Some big co- Depends, Paul, I would say, on the company. And entrepreneurs. It depends. Those kind of hip, young If you're people, looking for hip, hip, young they employees in, in their Brantford. 20s, sure, that's absolutely true. And I know companies that have spent millions and millions of dollars to relocate to cities, so you were but especially them, big cities like Chicago or New York. Which we can't compete with because of the labor pool or exactly. density. But Jay, so you're giving them honest talk that you're not going to bring Amazon here. But here's my gripe always with that. Why can't we both... Reasonably, why can't cities and suburbs agree that we do different things best that we need to work together? Of course. Instead of you suburban taxpayers fleecing us by using all our non-taxable institutions for what you need for education and culture and health care, but then making us pay twice the taxes to live in, in a more challenging urban environment just so that you can have lower taxes, why don't we all agree that certain kinds of companies do better in the suburbs? Certain kinds of culture and business do better in cities. Why don't we have one tax system and one joint effort to lure everybody here? Paul, not disagreeing with a thing you but just said. I bet said. you didn't say that to the chamber. Yes, I did. All right, and I'm what I said Good message. is, and I said, look, here's what's going to happen, folks. You're going to see, you know, you're going you're gonna to make your pitch. And some people might be attracted by the metropolitan area. And then they're going to locate off of exit 40 because that's easier. Yeah, uh, and and where people want to live is also an issue, you know. And given schools and various problems, but now a people want to live in New Haven. Not everybody wants to live there. So we tried. And when you were giving those talks, we were still trying to get suburban malls, which work better in suburbs. Which was a crazy idea. And then, despite planners' best efforts, organically the market supported kind of funky ethnic restaurants started by immigrants. Retail, you know, apartments like Joel Schiavone saw for empty nesters and young singles who want to live in a city. And it's interesting because that you gave that talk a few years ago because I've seen a paradigm shift and I wonder if you've seen it too. In the in the 80s, we fought suburban malls because mm-hmm. we wanted to get them, but that can't work. And we went through three iterations of malls that never came here. But now our mayor and West Haven, soon to be ex-mayor, actually worked together to have a strip shopping center come to West Haven but hope we get the jobs and that we feel like there's certain things we do better in cities. And not only that, for the first time ever, Bridgeport and New Haven are working together. Our regional economic planning centers, as well as our two city administrations and the suburbs, are actually saying if we want even bigger employers, we have to think of it as a bigger region, which I'm not sure is going to work because Bridgeport and New Haven are such different places psychically. But they're arguing that in other parts of this country, this would be one metro region. Then we get the density of employment, although our mass transit's broken. But, you know, there we get the density of employment. There we, we can kind of pool our strengths rather than try to fight each other absolutely i'm not gonna i mean that's what i my message was many years ago there are things cities do well there are things suburbs do well and you need to and i thought it was always a mistake for example to fight the various malls that were going in some people want malls, my malls fav- in my general chamber of commerce air to the 80s they had an old woman as an actress say I'm not scared to come to New Haven. I won't be a victim of crime. We're scared everybody in the suburbs and say, oh my God, it must be really dangerous. Rather than say, you know, it's great that people love to live in North Brantford. It's great that other people like me would rather live in a city. Let's all find the ways to make both places thrive. My son who grew up in the suburbs now lives uh, in the Worcester Square neighborhood. He loves it. So of course this is true. But there needs to be an What's missing is the interface between cities and suburbs, and it was true then, and it's true now. And so malls themselves have died. It's not where people want to shop, and now they don't go out at all. They just shop on Amazon, or they go to mom-and-pop stores, which is what I always look for. I think I'm a fairly typical suburbanite in certain ways. I go where I shop for food, for example. Occasionally, I go to the local stop-and-shop, which I'm not a huge fan of. Sometimes I'll drive down to Stu Leonard's or I'll go to, to Fairway since that's a real New York store and I'll go down to Stanford. And 
oftentimes I stop at Ferrara's on the way home. Because of the meats. I go to Edge of the Woods, which is no place like Edge of the Woods. Yeah, that's my where my wife likes Edge of the Woods. I like Ferrara's for the meat. Uh, and by the way, a plug for Ferrara's. Their cold cuts are absolutely the best, and their meats are still the best, and the guys are the nicest guys. For a, two or three years, we played for Ferrara's Christmas party. Best Christmas party oh, yeah? ever. Where they have it? They had it at their house. And, where do they live? Uh, I can't. Re- they they have a complex out in the birds. They also have. A, I can't. Re- this what kind was, of music is played at a Ferraro's? Because I know your band, the Gale, the Bales Gitlin Bales, Band. Gitlin yes, band let's promote that. Thank swing. you, Paul. You play everything from swing to classic rock to um, wait. I was writing. I was noticing the the variety. I thought that was pretty impressive. Um, Broadway shows. So you kind of swing all different ways. Oh, now we'll play whatever people so want to what pay they us play for. At a Ferraro's party. Okay, guess. I'm going to guess this big band. It, there were only two of us. It was a singer who played sax, and I was playing on their piano in their house. Sinatra tunes. <laughs> <laughs> we played three hours of Sinatra tunes, and, and we had a bass player. It was like New York, New York, so you can't get away from the city, Jay Gitlin. Of course you can. But you can. And I'm not trying to. But you can be on Dateline New Haven on WNHH Radio, your home for community radio, 103.5 FM, <laughs> live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. Our guest today is a musician and urban scholar named Jay Gitlin, who's been for more than half a century spying what's going on and playing a part in New Haven and has a lot to say about it. So as we said, you grew up on the island in the home of Seinfeld and the Gambino crime family. You also were, from a teenager, hanging out in the village playing jazz. You came to New Haven in the mid-60s, and you majored in city planning. You can't do that anymore. Okay, let me tell you about that. So that was my sophomore year. I took was probably the the most influential course on my uh, thinking. Who was the teacher? Christopher Tunnard, mm-hmm. who was the person who brought actually urban studies. See, I needed a cheat seat, cheat for this just to uh, talk about this. Nah, I don't need it. Um, Good movie. He came. He was a Canadian. He studied at Harvard uh, in graduate school, and he was in the army in the Royal Canadian Air Force. He came to New Haven. I can't remember exactly when. There wasn't an urban studies program. He started one in the architecture what school. Year? Well, then I have to look at the Don't GC. Don't look it up. Mid-60s. What year did you start? No, I think it was in the 50s. I think okay. it was earlier than that. I came here 67, 68. Wow. What a time to be here. Oh, my God, yes. So so I took Tunnard. It, it was an introduction to city planning. It was in the uh, Hastings Hall in the Art and Architecture School. God-awful building. and uh, But it was a fascinating class. And just to get to cities for a second, part of how this influenced me, one of the books which I brought with me that we read was called The Historian in the City. And one of the essays in this was by a medievalist at Yale, Roberto Lopez, and I took his class. And I never forgot this. His article was called The Crossroads Within the Wall. And again, I'm a fan of cities. I love cities. To me, you can't live in one or the other. You have to live in both. You know, if you're an American and and you're looking for certain things. And the crossroads in the wall was his iconography. He said this was a standard iconography people used in the Middle Ages. The crossroads represented that intersection because cities welcome people. They welcome ideas. They welcome goods. And they need to bring people in. That's what cities depend on. They quicken the pace of life. That's what people want. But it's also a crossroads within a circle. And the wall represented the enclosure, the idea of home. And this is what cities provided. And especially in the Middle Ages, a city was a place where a person could be free. There's a reason the idea... Which is of, the way I see New Haven now. If you're an unconventional person, mm-hmm. like for me, everything from being sort of like outside the political mainstream to being an observant Jew, I feel like to loving every kind of music and wanting to sample it. From the minute I got to New Haven, I wasn't all those things yet then, I found that this is the place you could do all that and be comfortable and be part of the society. And by the and way... you can't do that course, in the suburbs. I disagree. I think that's wrong. In fact, I, wrong about I, that. I yeah. had a scene, and, and you know, everything's changing, Paul, including the suburbs. Uh, I uh, go to uh, the uh, Y, the uh, Shoreline Y, out in uh, Brantford, and uh, it. And I and I read a senior essay a few years ago on the nature of the Y in Connecticut, and they were talking about the sort of division of resources, and they were making a case for a kind of racial segregation within the Y. And that is not my experience at the Shoreline Y. It's much more diverse than Actually, people in New Haven would realize. Actually, we in the city have about suburbs, almost as suburbs have about city. But here's the thing, Jay Gitlin. Mm-hmm. The moment you took urban studies in Yale was new. Two things blow my mind about that. Okay. At the time you came, 
the way everyone in America was trying to understand cities who went to college was to read about New Haven. Robert Dahl had written the book, Who Governs, which mm-hmm. became for a generation or more the textbook about how urban politics and cities work. It made an argument, and please correct me if I'm wrong because you're much better about this than I am. He made the argument that urban ethnic machines are the way that each new group gets to get involved in a community when they have no other way in, and that that kind of pluralism, that kind of every group getting favors and there for electing people allowed first Italian American, Irish Americans, Italian Americans to become part of the system, and that that was democracy. Dahl himself told me before he died, gener- decades later, that he was wrong, because I called him up, I said, you know, I read your book, I loved it, but I've covered the cities, and I felt like there were a lot of people within those groups, if they're not on the inside, they actually undemocratically get iced out. Decisions aren't made in the popular interest. It's for the small group who gets the favors, and it, the rules didn't work the same way for African Americans. When it became their time, to get the jobs and ascend to the high positions. They had to fight for it in a way the other groups didn't have to. And he did feel that racial politics made it more complicated. But my point to you, Jay, is Mm -hmm. there was a political scientist at Yale who wrote the book, the central textbook for the whole country to study urban studies. He did it in a city that had the most concentrated experiment in the 50s and 60s in the country in urban renewal. We got more dollars by far per Mm -hmm. citizen from private foundations and the federal government to knock down slums, try to rebuild the cities, and test out the social programs that became the foundation of the great society. No better Petri dish from academic books to real-life experiment to how cities work and change. And there was no urban studies department here. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, And it's still amazing. But, but yet you came and they were starting one and now it's gone. No, but what did they you didn't find? start it then. They started it in the 50s. They 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 got rid of it in 1968, the end of my sophomore year, why? and they replaced it. I'll tell you why. I think there's a reason. I can't vouch for all of this. But my suspicion is, and it was part of something that uh, Whitney Griswold had done when he was president in the 50s. He was not for practical studies he wanted to emphasize the liberal arts and uh, one of the things that yale had that was it really before even chris tunnard got here was something called a center for traffic uh, for transportation studies that was begun by an old yaley from the class i believe of 1884 named william phelps eno who was one of like two phelps people State? uh nope it's the same family but not this guy William Phelps Eno, who was the guy who 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 uh, pioneered the idea of the traffic circle, he was one of two. I'll get to the other one because you'll be interested in this. And so we had a center for transportation studies under Griswold that went bye bye. And so that's when. And so he he already started a trend against this kind of a practical uh, kind of thing, whether it was a, a teaching thing or or transportation studies. He wasn't for that. But the real reason, I think, had a lot more to do with the fact that there was a perceived radical element in amongst the graduate students in the architecture school. Which there was. That which, was a hotbed of radicalism. Yeah. And so it's like, who needs this? You know, it's like, who needs this search? And isn't it funny at Yale how having any interest in New Haven was defined as radical left? Which is really absurd. But that is the... When I went to Yale in the mm-hmm. late 70s, early 80s, anyone who knew where Mamoons was two blocks from campus was a lefty. Which is ridiculous. And Nobody Paul, I was one of the few people, even in my era, when which was a, a slightly more you know political conscious, yeah. uh, con- politically conscious era, I knew New Haven, and the reason I knew New Haven was because I was a musician. So mm-hmm. I played at the Ambassador, I played at the Waverly, and I went out to North Haven. Even then, I knew the suburban. You can't know New Haven without knowing Hamden and North Haven and Brantford and Guilford and West Haven. Because it's a whole metropolitan area, and I played gigs out there, and I played gigs at the Melibus Club, so I knew people in Which town. Which was the sunken, looks like a bomb shelter. It actually was a fallout shelter where all the political machine events took place, but now it's done. It's but gone. Conroe, olive, and water. This is a lot of how I knew the town. You so, know? Jay, you talked about transportation, which mm-hmm. was so central to urban planning, and in New Haven... It was the Rodeval plan, Andrew and Maurice Rodeval, about how to redesign a city, which was the basis for how we did urban renewal. And the underlying philosophy, and please correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. is that we had to compete with the suburbs by letting cars get in and out of New Haven as fast as we could. That's why we built the mini highway that never got completed, the Route 34 connector, which now we're trying to unbuild, and we're almost done with that. It's why we have all these crazy one-way streets to just drive as fast as you can, which the new, new urbanism has completely disavowed and saying now you have to have traffic move slower and have people be able to walk and bike better. What did you find in studying at the time that that was doing to the city? Were you aware of this in 1967, or did that still feel like... Oh, my God, yes. 
So there's so because there was a ring road that Rodovel wanted built. Paul, there's so the many answers to, to this. Give okay. me one or two. Okay. First of all, when I took this class with Christopher Tunner, which was so influential on me, uh, this introduction to city planning, one of our assignments was to go out to New Haven, see what was going on. And I went down to Oak Street, and they hadn't finished anything then, but you could still see the the the. They were tearing down a neighborhood, which was slums, were, of course, well, to build but, the highway. Through. But again, see, you know, it's it's how urban urbanists looked at the city. They looked at this as a cancer, and you have to cut it out. It was not a good idea. They ruined the neighborhood. It was a viable neighborhood, and one of the, it was, was not everyone, just you know, a black neighborhood. Everyone, it was a Jewish, Jewish neighborhood. Why did every Jewish person try to leave that neighborhood the second they could? Now they're all saying they had another reunion about it Sunday. We missed the old neighborhood. It's terrible. They tore it down. Every single one of them went to Westville or Orange or or um, Woodbridge the second they could afford to. That motivation I can't exactly explain. Okay, but I can tell you that when, when I my dad was here during World War II to study Japanese at Yale, he went swimming at the old Jewish Center on Chapel Street, and I saw when it, for this assignment for this class I saw the signs in Yiddish. That were down on the ground. It was so sad. It was a wonderful Jewish neighborhood. And of course, mixed, it was Italian American and black, but but they tore it down to make room for a highway that they never f- completed. So this is the concept of urban planning. So I've actually learned more about that this year because I have a student named Will Bernstein who is probably listening. But Will is doing a fabulous paper on Maurice Rodeval, who was the guy who did the city plan in of New 40s. Haven in 1942. And what he has discovered, which I only barely suspected, was that Rodeval was born in Paris in 1892. And Rodeval studied with a guy named Eugène Aynard. And Aynard, along with Eno, was one of the two people who, was, who did the first traffic flow studies. And their concept was to have ring roads and circular patterns and traffic circles. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure why I'm not sure why you cut out. Okay, um, but I'm still on. Why don't you for now come around to my computer? We're going to play music for one minute and come right back to Dateline New Haven with Jay Gitlin. I think so. Yeah. Am I back on? I am back on. the shortest break for technical difficulties in the history of (laughs) WNHHJ, who's an experienced musician. Did pull out the mic, but we're back. So Maurice, Rod- no, sorry about that, folks. Jay, so the Maurice Rodeval had a plan. I didn't pull it out, Rose. by the way. I oh, think sorry. it was loose. Okay, okay, but just to get back to Maurice Rodeval. So here's a guy who studied with Enard, who was the pioneer of traffic circles. H e n a r d. Eugène Enard. It's fascinating to me. And a guy named Rodeval, who's born in Paris in 1892. So he took Enard's ideas and Enard's friend Corbusier. And he brought these modernist ideas about traffic flow to New Haven in 1942. And I brought a copy to show you. When you look at Rodeval's plan from 1942, it's like, there's New Haven. That's what they did. Except for the final ring road that was going to be over East Rock and around the edge of the city, which the activists did stop. And so they brought this concept of modernism, the idea that access roads flow in and out, circulation. It was a modernist idea. It wasn't a good idea. And they never did what I thought they should do, and I still think they should do, improve the roads that link New Haven to the rest of the state and to New York. For example, it's impossible. It takes forever to get from New Haven to Danbury. Danbury is a thriving urban center. But that's why they wanted to do the Route 34 connector, which was one of the worst um, examples of destroying an entire neighborhood on the west side of town. Of course, but they didn't do it right. Okay, they shouldn't have destroyed the neighborhood, but you do need the road to connect. We don't have modern connections. So I would argue that the whole state is, in a sense, a kind of urban community that can rise together. And there's a lot of development in Danbury. If we were connected, I think it would be more attractive. The other thing I would say about transportation is that we never dealt with mass transit. And mass right. transit's a terrible problem for the people who it's live here. In New Haven because I take buses and that's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. And, uh, and, and I've had Forget students write papers about this. In there. Of course. But what you need is a better transit system. You need a mixed transit system because you've got to get people in and out. There was a fellow named Brodsky, who, Brodsley, Joseph Brodsley, who did a fascinating book called The L.A. Freeway. And he did it at least 20 years ago. And he got kids from a suburban part of L.A. and kids from, from the inner city in L.A. 
And he said, I would like you to draw your neighborhood, what your concept of Los Angeles is. And the kids from the inner city drew these dense little, like their radius was a couple blocks. And the kids from the suburbs, you know, had obviously a much larger palette to draw from. That was their concept. And we've got to, we've got to fix both of those, is my way of so thinking Jacqueline, about this. In your studies, one thing I've always wondered about in the, the redesign of the city and transit was that hydra-headed intersection where Goff Street, Whaley, Tower Parkway, Elm Street, Broadway, and Goff all meet. It's the most terrifying place. It's god-awful. How did that happen? Was that some Yaley? Well, that's a good guess because, you know, one could look at Rodeval, who actually held the city office and was a professor of planning, and say, you know, maybe we shouldn't ask Gail how to do things. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's, that's certainly, there's some wisdom there. But tell me, why do you think that it's a terrible thing? It's where all these streets meet, and, and it's got this circle with a parking lot in the middle. Why did that happen? Where does that come from? Where, where did it come from? From trolleys. The oh. trolleys went up and down. Uh, they went out uh, Dixwell. They went out Whaley. Right, because those are three main arteries that start in one place but branch in different directions. Whaley goes due west. Go- uh, Dixwell goes north, and Goff kind of bisects. And they all come into New Haven at that point. And the reason it's circular is because the trolleys needed a place to turn oh. around. That's why it is what it is. I with that parking lot yet, Paul, though. I've been sitting there for 20 years looking at this and saying, this is from this worked in a trolley era of the 1890s. So when did it get built this way? It got built this way. I may be wrong about this, but I can tell you that New Haven annexed Fairhaven and Westville in 1897, a year before New York City, Manhattan, became greater New York. They annexed Brooklyn and Queens and Staten Island in 1898. So this was the great period where cities were sort of gobbling up their near suburbs and and when cities expand their land base. So that was a city, the, the age of the imperial city. So this is the age of the trolleys. So my guess is that this took its present form sometime between the 1890s and about 1915. And it's lasted ever since. And once upon a time when everybody came into New Haven via the trolleys, this was a flourishing business district. You know, there was a car dealership right down there. Well, that was the car district on Whaley. Even before Whaley, there was one right near where the Yale campus is now. There was a car distributorship. There were all sorts of businesses that served a lot of building trades. It was a flourishing commercial center because everybody was there in the tr- and now it makes no sense and it hasn't made sense for a long time. But I when s- did it get paved that way? Was that when they did that? <sighs> when did we get that traffic circle from hell and why? Probably as soon as the trolleys disappeared. And I should know this because I, in my college, we celebrated trolley night when the last trolley uh, came. Oh, when was that? What year? Uh, I can't tell you. I want to say it's sometime in the 40s. That uh-huh. would probably be the answer. And my guess is that all of this took its present form sometime in the 40s. All right. And sometime in 2017, you are listening to Jay Gitlin, <laughs> musician and urban scholar and suburban scholar for more than a half century in New Haven is here on WNHH Radio's Dateline New Haven, 103.5 FM, live stream at newhavenindependent.org. So, Jay, you were here an incredible time. You came in 67, you said. That was the year that New Haven was the model city. It was called. Everyone from the New York Times to the national magazines were saying that we're doing urban renewal right. And all of a sudden, people started taking a second look. We had our first riot, and they said, in 67, how can we have a riot in New Haven? Then 69, the Black Panthers came here. Never took big hold here, but they had a famous murder here where they tortured one of their own as being a suspected informer at the old um, Ethan Gardens apartment, even though he turned out to be just about the only person who wasn't a government informer in the New Haven chapter. And then when they murdered him, the people actually committed the murder, admitted to it, but the FBI under the COINTELPRO program wanted to bring down the, the heads of the party, so they put Bobby Seale and Erica Huggins on trial here for conspiracy, and they wanted the death penalty. Became a cause celeb. Radicals came from all over the country, wanted to shut down downtown, wanted to burn down Yale, in the words of Jerry Rubin. The city shut down. We had the Nixon had authorized the governor's request for the National Guard. John Dean was sneaking into town. This was the idea New Haven might blow up on May Day weekend. You were here. What was going on? What was your role? Okay, it was my junior year. I got to tell you two little incidents about this. 
So one is that now you have to understand it was like a it it was very serious politically. Obviously, you know, race was an issue. Vietnam was an issue. There were tanks lined up on the Grove Street Cemetery. So I mean, for if you were a Yale undergraduate, people were wandering around. Some of them taking pictures, taking videos. It's like what in the world is going on? Storefronts were boarded up. Now all these folks came in from all over the country because it was also like a floating happening. Alvin uh, Allen Ginsberg was chanting in the Brantford courtyard. And when the tear gas came, he was on the old campus and He wrote a great poem about New Haven that I found in the archives. That, we that I haven't seen. It. It I a need to see that. wonderful book that really makes you envision the sort of industrial legacy of New Haven, the last bits as you see by the mini highway, by the train station, everything, mm-hmm. and the ghost of it industry in the new era yeah oh that's so interesting i i will look that up so i'm out there i was a student marshal trying to make sure nobody got hurt what does it mean a student marshal uh we were an armband and when people a few people when they set off the pepper gas canisters fell down on the green it was i helped some people up so they wouldn't get trampled so we were just trying to make sure nobody got hurt that's all that meant i can't even remember who organized this i remember i had an armband that was about it but as i'm walking and there's all these people who have come into New Haven, and New Haven and Yale had a strategy of opening up rather than closing right. down. Right, Bruce just said we're going to feed all these people. And we all ate breakfast. familiar for the week. It was just god awful. But were you at the Yale Whale, the ice rink, the night before the rally when a bomb went off and there were I, rock bands playing, and luckily everybody had been on one end of the of the. I was not end. there. I know, of course, about it, but I have to just tell you. So I'm walking the street and I see this guy I know, uh, who's a jazz trumpet player. His name is Mike Gribrek. I can't vouch for the state he was in. I said to Mike, I was like, Mike, what are you doing in New Haven, man? And he said, oh, I thought it was a jazz festival. <laughs> so so that's my one story. The other story is being there. I was on the green when Jerry Rubin was trying to galvanize Yale students and whoever else was there and radicalize them. And all I know, and this I can swear to, he was up there. We all took a look at him. We thought, this guy's just the biggest a-hole we've ever seen in our life. And he was saying, F. Kingman Brewer. No, Kingsley Brewer. Kingsley Brewer. And it's like, he couldn't get the guy's name straight. And we were just looking at him. It's like, Oh my! Go home. You know get out of here. My favorite part about this because that's in the movie Bright College Years. You see him making that. Well, speech. I'm going to be showing it to my class the night before that. Jerry Rubin was secretly meeting with Kingman Bruiser in his home to try to talk yes. about how to make sure there wasn't violence. I've heard phony. that from Sam. So Chauncey. when I look back at that, I look at Tom Hayden saying the facts don't matter at that rally. That this is about standing up to the man. And when you think about, to me, everything about May Day weekend was about how much facts mattered. So the Black Panthers did not have the facts when they tortured brutally this guy, Alex Rackley, in their party for being an informant he wasn't, and then murdered him. The facts didn't matter to the radicals, I believe, about the brutal things the Black Panthers did to some of their members. The facts didn't matter to the FBI, who we found in their documents were framing everybody and trying to get Black Panthers to commit violence against each other, writing notes in each other's, in their handwriting, saying one was having sex with somebody else or trying to take power away from you. It seems like it was fatal that all sides in that politically charged atmosphere didn't care about facts uh, paul I, I agree with all of that but and again for for mike gribrek the facts didn't matter it wasn't the js festival it was it was very serious and speaking as you know i see this as a junior still as a junior as an undergraduate yale and all of us were scratching our heads and saying man what just happened here this is a strange circus, and things... Well, weren't some of the big issues that they felt that the government was trying to, which they did have a policy of making sure there'd be new, no black messiah, in the words of J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, that you had to cut down any leaders, so this was going to be a way to cut down the least of Black Panther parties. There was this idea of black man can't get revolution, you can't get a fair trial in, in America, as King Brewster said, although they got a very fair trial, and the judge let them off after hung jury rather than retrying them, because he felt the government's case was weak. Um, but... Wasn't that the main thing about whether Paul? Black- of course it was, but I'm telling you that my mindset still was as a, was as an undergraduate, and I wasn't. That horizon was past me. We were just looking at what was going on on our campus and in the town. I had to go pick up a check from Pat Dorn. This is again a true story. 
his he office. He was a jazz musician in New Haven. Well, he was a sort of a band, band leader. Band leader, yeah. And, uh, and so his office was on 39 Church Street. So I'm crossing the green, and I start talking to a guy who was a stringer for the New York Times. And the Times had sent him up to cover what was going what was on in New Haven. I can't remember. Sorry. Uh, all I know is that he said to me, I, I, this was the first day of, of the weekend. So hardly anything had even happened. He said, no, nah, I've got my story. I'm going back to New York. And I said, really? This is journalism? <laughs> I called my dad and said, all that stuff about all the news that's fit to print, don't believe it. It's not true. And I went over to 39 Church Street, and everybody on Church Street, it was boarded up. It's like, we're getting out of town. So people were absolutely scared. They thought New Haven was going to blow. Of course they did. And Kent State happened, what? Three a, days later. Three days later. And we had, like, there was- Where unarmed a, protesters were shot to death by National Guardsmen. And they were told in New Haven that if they shot- any protesters, there would not be consequences. That was actually something that was said here, but they didn't shoot him here. This was serious business, and there was a mock funeral for the students that went down uh, Broadway, down Elm Street, and it was very somber, but my reaction, being Paul who I am, is just sort of a musician at least half of the time, all, all the time, but half of my mind always occupied with that. I remember sitting at the piano in my college and playing uh, Fire and Rain by James I Taylor. Love that song. I love that song too, and it just I can that song conjures it all up for me. How sad this all was. So that was kind of my response. Now, how do you to feel it. looking back at it now? That was 1970. Looking back at it 47 years later, Jay, you've been in town. God, 47 years. Okay. What do you think about that now? What do you think happened, and what did it mean? <sighs> I think, Paul. I'm sorry to say, I think there weren't. It was a very consequential time. I was not a poli-sci major, but I feel like too many of those problems have festered for 47 years. Which and, is the core urban problems. Which are the core urban problems, problems of race in this country. I, I hear a lot about this to my students. I was fortunate enough, unlike most of them, that I still think it's a problem in Yale, in New Haven, that it's kind of fortress Yale. We don't know what's going on on Dixwell Avenue. I do because I used to play in the churches. Actually, Yale's buying up Dixwell Avenue. Well, of course they are. You know, and so I'm not sure that's bad, by the way. I'm not sure it's necessarily good or bad, but they're buying up these blocks to expand their campus zone. But those blocks had really stopped being viable economically. There mm -hmm. will be some more housing. There's definitely more commerce. Part of it will be Yale storage facilities. They're not quite sure what they're going to do. So some people object saying they want a buffer zone in the city that's wider so they can attract more students. But other people, neighbors, don't necessarily object to the new community center that's at the new headquarters of their police there. I think it's a more mixed... I've come to see it as more nuanced. Paul, I agree with that. In fact, it's a great center. The place they built where the police are, is a, a lot of great stuff happens with kids in that center. Well, there you go. Well, you know, I would say this. From looking at the various papers that students write over the years, and I learn so much always from the students, but part of what what they come to is a conclusion. It's like, look, we are constantly building and rebuilding and thinking that this will fix the problem. And this was one of the many flaws of the whole urban renewal idea. If you change the space, the problems go away. Right. They thought if you knock down the slums and move them out of sight, you want to. It's slums environmental of determinism, and it doesn't work. And this is the should be, I think, the big lesson for a lot of planners. It's like. These are people problems. You need to, to address the people. You need to talk to people. What do you need? Why is, what is the problem here? And if you can't bring resources to people, changing the spaces aren't going to make and as much of a difference. And are going to change. You know, Jane Jacobs of course they always are. wanted the people wish we could go back to the store in the first floor of the apartments above, which are kind of cool, but sometimes we've built that storefronts that never get filled because patterns have changed of density. My two conclusions, Jay, are mm -hmm. one, because I've kind of studied it now for me, not as long as you. For me, it's only been about 40 years studying New Haven and what does this mean about it's cities. long enough. I believe that New Haven is a Rorschach test for urban policy. It's a choose-your-own-adventure story. So the ones we read to our kids where you kind of say, if you want the prince to kiss the frog, you know, or the frog to kiss the princess, you turn to page 27. If you want them all to die, page, page 40, you pick your ending. I believe that if you're a neoliberal who believes what went wrong with or with urban renewal was that there just wasn't enough government investment to do it right. If you're a, a leftist who think there need to be more empowerment, if you're a libertarian who says you can't, 
fix people's problems through government. If you're conservative, says there were wrong incentives built in the system. If you're a, a transportation planner who says you shouldn't plan around the car, be neoliberalism, you can find an answer to support any political philosophy about how to rebuild cities based on the ashes of New Haven growing poorer. And I'm less convinced that anyone ideology is true over this time. I think it's a dynamic process and that it's made me less sure of any answers and more interested in the quest. And the second conclusion is there is no problem. I've always loved New Haven since the day I got here. Mm. I always thought it was a mistake to try to be like the suburbs. There are always challenges we have. But I've never, it was a great place for me to bring up my kids. I want to live here. And it's great that you want to live in North Brantford. <laughs> and I just think New Haven's a great place to live and do things and have be different and come up with great ideas and find people who are different from you and enjoy that communal quest and great culture. And if you don't want a bigger city, but you don't want a boring suburb. And uh, so those are my two conclusions. What are yours? I'll go with yours because I also believe that there's there are ways, there are so many different approaches and my sense has always been, and many of these are important and should work. I believe in a better road that connects New Haven to Danbury. I believe in helping people who live here. I believe in, in making people in the burbs and in the city understand that they have common regional problems. I believe in all of that. Um, I'm a historian and not a political scientist, and my perspective is a little different. So part of what I'm interested in is seeing how did this all unfold the way it did? And one of the reasons New Haven is a Rorschach test, and New Haven's always been so important, I mean, the two principal places were urban, not that they're exclusive, uh, but there were other places, but the two primary places for urban renewal were New York City and New Haven. There's a reason for this. And Newark. Newark to a lesser Newark degree. Newark got more money per capita than New York for urban renewal. But for, when we're talking about big bucks, mm -hmm. it was New Haven and it was New York. And the people in charge of development in both places were Yaleys. Bob Moses. And and where was Bob Moses from? New, uh, New Haven. Grew up on Dwight Street. Yeah. And Yale class of 1909. There is a connection here. And, and one of the people most responsible for urban renewal was? John Lindsay. In Congress, it was it was Taft, right? Who and, was a, a liberal Republican who passed the Urban Renewal Act that we used to get the money. And and who is Robert Taft good friends with? Bob Moses, oh. class of nineteen ten, class of nineteen oh nine. So what fascinates me about this is, in part, the fact that there's this incredible Yale connection behind urban renewal. The fact that a guy like Maurice Rodeval comes up with a plan for New Haven that gives us our ring roads based on studies he does with a guy and from the new Paris. My favorite um, Rorschach theory mm -hmm. is the guy who um, is now at Development Ministries New Haven. His theory about why New Haven got poorer and why it didn't work, although I agree some of it did work. I would argue that like Fairhaven Hill, Center Hill cells did work and some of the co-ops for a while. He thought that the worst five minutes of architecture in world history occurred just when we got all the money to rebuild New Haven. And that's how I did all the, the Coliseum that we built and have already torn down. Oh my God, The so-called yes. Human Services Center, which was the most inhuman possible building on uh, State Street, which is now the Knights uh, of Columbus uh, Museum. That's his theory. But Jay, before you go, and thank you, Jay Gitlin, for being on, on Day Are we done today. already? Almost. We're not done. Although we could talk for hours. <laughs> I want to ask you about the intersection of music and politics. In okay, please. We've now come to the present. Let's go back to 1975. Um, Dick Lee had been the mayor for 16 years, did urban renewal. He got succeeded by a guy named Bart Guider, who was put in by the Democratic machine. A guy named Arthur Barberi, who was the machine boss for generations in New Haven, kind of got to pick who got elected and things. And he was challenged by reformers in 1975, a guy named Frank Logan, a bunch of Yellies, um, Ted Baldwin, people like that, Stan Greenberg, Rosa Laura was part of that. So there was this big election in 1975, big control. There was an incumbent mayor named Bart Guider by the machine. He was the the stand-in for Bart, for Arthur Barberi, who ran the machine. And these reformers who wanted to uh, get rid of the machine, they ran in a reform guy, a guy named Frank Logue for mayor, although later they all became friends and divided up the government spoils together, but that's another story in the 80s. So, 75, there's a Democratic Count Convention to decide whom the party's going to support for mayor. And you were there because you were playing a gig, right? Oh, my God, yes. What it, was your gig? It was at the Park Plaza. Today Which is, is now the Omni. The Omni. All right, and I think it was a four-piece band, and and we were hired. The guy I played for quite often back in the day, 1975, was Pat Dorn. Who, until I believe this century, was sort of, he'd play every political event. 
I think he did. And I was on many of those gigs. Really? And one of his... Was he a nice guy? uh, Say that again? Was he a nice guy? He was was, uh, unique. Ooh, that's a good story there, but maybe you don't want to tell it. This well, no, it's okay. I liked Pat uh, in his way, but uh, there was a saxophone player I knew named Dave Zwirlin who uh, used to say, you know, that Pat, he makes unknowns out of stars. <laughs> he had a lot of good musicians, but it was, it, the circumstances were not always the best for a musician. I came from New York where I earned a certain amount of money for a gig. I got to New Haven. It was a lot less. So there was some, you know, there were some problems but there. But Pat Doran got all the gigs because he was friends with Arthur Barberi. Yes. Who and was the machine boss at the Democratic Party. So he hires you, Pat Doran. And to, be part of- to just give Pat his due, he had the best band in town, I would say. The best musicians were playing for him. So you were part of a so four piece. You were playing we keyboards. We were playing, playing for this convention and that night at the park. deciding, Boston. do we have Arthur Barberi's candy bar guy to get supported by the town committee for re-election or do these reformers take over the party and get Frank Logue to be the nominee? And so somebody from Frank Logue's campaign, and I think it was, I was a Ted Baldwin's that, you know, I, okay. He, I think it was him came over to me because the piano player often looks like the leader of the band. And I do oftentimes count things off or do things, but I was not in control. I was hired by Pat. And so he comes over to me and he says, whatever you do, when they put Frank's name into nomination, don't play a Yale song. And that's funny because Ted Baldwin came from Yale. Um, Frank Logue came of from Yale. Of course they did. And the people, even though Arthur Barberi went to Yale, he was identity was more of a townie. And the and the mayor they were trying to upend, Bart Guider, resented Yale deeply. He was a townie who resented the snobbery of Yale and what they did to the city. And yet it was the Yaleys are saying, don't play a Yale song. Why was that? Well, Paul, and correct me if you think I'm wrong. My guess would be that they didn't want him associated with Yale. He already had too much of an association with reformers, which, which doesn't liberals. Play well with it the doesn't play well. So they wanted you to maybe do a musical lie. Exactly right. A lie through omission. Okay. So now we're about to, they've put the name into to a nomination. I look up at Pat because Pat's in charge. He hired us. I said, Pat, what should I play? He said, Bulldog. <laughs> so I played but what Bulldog. Was the moment was that when Frank's walking out? That when he was walking out, sure. So each candidate at the he, town convention those days would have music for when yes, walking just out? like baseball players. That's not how it works now. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, so it was fun for These us. Were real events, yeah. Oh my god! So so we played Bulldog. Well, what did you think though? Did I got think? a dirty look from everybody. You know, from from Logue, from from Baldwin. They all gave me a dirty look, and I shrugged. It's like, hey, I'm getting paid. It's like they told me to play Bulldog. All I know, either in the newspaper or on Channel 8 that evening, uh, I was even the piano player was in the pocket of the machine. <laughs> and, and, of course, that's true. <laughs> that's very funny. Then, of course, Frank Logue did win. Bart Gaida killed himself. I think history's been kinder to Bart Gaida than the present time was, because the saying always was, Bart Barberi roasted, I could pick any man off the street and make him mayor. And Bart Guider was saying, oh, he's the town. He's not so smart. And he made him the mayor. Truth was, Bart Guider was an intelligent man who was the mm-hmm. president of the Board of Alders. And it was right when he predicted, when he looked at Yale's plans for the city, that it was going to hurt the tax base. He tried to fight him, lost in court because he couldn't match the lawyers. He was very suspicious of Yale during May Day. His aide and Yale's top aide had to work secretly behind their backs to try to work together to prevent um, violence on the green. He was an interesting character. Paul, all I... I knew all this. I knew this world from the perspective of a piano player. So one time I was walking down. <laughs> Don't shoot me. You're the piano player. Come on. I'm walking down Wall Street and, uh, and, and Ben DeLito walked by. And, and he was the police chief who would soon become the mayor and knock out the machine. So Ben DeLito knew my face. He knew I was on these gigs. He didn't know my name, I'm sure. But he waved to me and said hi. And then I passed, I think it was Dick Lee, who was still around. Former mayor. Who was walking in toward Maury's. Who was bitter that anyone would ever get to be mayor after he was the mayor. And very sad, because he thought he was doing something good about urban rule. And I couldn't understand why the people he tried to help most didn't appreciate it. Yes, yes. And so, but I see Dick Lee walking toward Maury's, and he waves and says hi. And then there was a third person, maybe Frank, like somebody who also waved and said hi to me. And I remember calling my folks up and say, they don't know my name, but three mayors of New Haven just waved to me. That's what I love about New Haven in that one anecdote is New Haven, we all do know each other. It's true. You're part of the mix right up top, and we might fight sometimes. We have fun other times, but we're all trying to figure our way out. 
I, there's always another day. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the great things about being here. So what about now? You've, you've stuck it out for more than half a century. What's New Haven's future? Is New Haven still just another stop off the turnpike, in your opinion? I hear music. Does this mean we're almost through? Yeah, now you got to be heavy, man. you got to bring it home. Oh, my got God. got a full circle with that Okay, song. can I tell you one thing? Yeah. Because I just, you know, I, I, I love these quirky little things. So talk about cities and the importance of cities. Baseball teams are named, they have city origins. So one time, I was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan growing up. Wow. And I went to Ebbets Field. It was my first ball game. So one of my cousins out in L.A., a, a, a young, actually the son of a cousin, a young kid, a huge Los Angeles Dodgers fan. And I said to him, you know, they used to be the Brooklyn Dodgers. And he looks at me and like, what are you kidding? That's not true. I said, no, they were the Brooklyn Dodgers. Why do you think they're called the Dodgers? You know where that name comes from? No. They were called the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers. Oh. People who dodged the trolley. That's why they're the Dodgers. Wow. And he looked at me story. like I was such a stranger. Un, 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 you know why they're called the Yankees? I, we're going to run out of time, but i got to tell you this. You know where Yankees comes from? This was something people in New England, it was a, a bad, it was a an epithet hurled at Dutch New Yorkers. It, it came from Jan, as in J-A-N, and then K, K, uh, K-E-E-S. It means Johnny Cheese Eater. It was oh something God. New Englanders said about New Yorkers. They're just a bunch of Johnny Cheese Eaters, and that became Yankees. Wow. It comes from the Dutch. So, Jay Gitlin. Is okay, New now Haven we have just, to get oh, serious, just, right? Oh, no, it's okay. Enjoy it okay. all. I don't be serious about this either. New Haven, just another stop off the turnpike today in 2017? Yes, but it doesn't mean it's not important. It doesn't mean it's not a great city. But we need to understand the larger context. That's what I would say. There are issues about transportation, about linkage, about parking. All these things matter. Of course, New Haven's a great place. I think it's a great place, too. I love New York. I love New Haven. But you also have to understand the larger context. As I used to tell my class, once upon a time in the Middle Ages or before, all roads led to Rome. All roads now don't lead to Rome. They lead home. Back when there were just certain ways of going, you had to go into the city. Now we take our cars, we go home. It's a different paradigm. See, I would argue that that was a story in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, and that we have a new story now. Mm-hmm. And that while you're right, we have to address our challenges regionally. New Haven, I believe, is sui generis. I believe it's the, by far the most interesting place to live around here. I've decided I never want to live anywhere else. And that separate from the suburbs, I think it does exist as a special kind of place. I'll just say this, Paul. I dream of new mass transit systems. I care so much about this. I actually dream about systems that will somehow integrate us and provide both aspects, going to Rome or New Haven and going home, and that there'll be ways of putting this all together. Jacob Lynn, I can't believe how much fun I had speaking with you. <laughs> it has been I fun. think you are fascinating, a wonderful guy, and really smart and interesting and fun. Thank and you it, w- so will much. You, will you come back? Sure. I mean, I got you on the air now because you really can't say no. Yeah, that's true. But I'm going to hold you to it. Okay. Deal. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today in Dateline New Haven on WNHH. Thanks to our guest, Jay Gitlin. Just a really special character. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free from their CD, A Plea for Peace. Now we know what it's like to be free. We just got to remember to book our flight. Book your flight with us all day and all night long here on WNHH. Your home for community radio.